Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, a fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This is the final episode of Series 2 of Government vs. the Robots. I don't want to spoil what's to come for you, but there is a plea at the end to get in touch with us if you want to influence Series 3. We've got some time to do some thinking about the issues we tackle in the future, and now would be a great time to hear from people who've been following these discussions and want to have their say about where we go next. As for who the guest is this week, that's me, and I'm being interviewed by Liz Carolan, who you might remember from the episode Lessons from Ireland. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Government versus the Robots. I am your guest host for one week only, Liz Carolyn, and uh, I'm here with Jonathan and we're going to be picking his brain now that two seasons of the podcast uh, are coming to a close. Uh, this is, we believe, episode number 41. Um, so very, very happy to, to be here, Jonathan. It's very strange to be here. We've just swapped chairs. We have. And I've sat in that chair for the last 40, 40 episodes and being on this side of the desk is a bit strange. And I'm, I'm actually, I confess to being quite nervous because um, I'm conscious a lot of the people who we've had on the show have written books, they're experienced speakers, and all I've done really is ask people a lot of questions. So as to how much wisdom I'll be able to, to share in this interview, I don't know, but let's find out. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm personally very excited uh, as, a, as a listener to the podcast. Uh, you know, I'm just, just even looking back at the, the sheer amount of people and the variety of people that you've um, spoken with over the last sort of nearly two years. Um, so sh- sh- should we dive right in and, and maybe you could explain how this came about? Um, what's the kind of the, the story that, that led us to, to sitting here today? Yeah, I guess there's different bits to that. I mean, the main thing is, if I'm kind of if I'm honest about it, I spent most of the last decade working in international development. And that has been really interesting and been mm. great for kind of getting a perspective on the world, I guess. But as things started to shift in British politics, when I first left university, I went to work in Parliament and I was kind of thinking of oh, politics be the thing that I do. And then I jumped into international development. And in 2016, a lot of stuff happened that everybody's very familiar with that started to feel like things had really changed somehow. And working in development, I felt like there was something I wanted to keep my eye in on politics and understand something. So there was a bit of kind of, I managed to negotiate in my job to do a four day week so that I had one day a week to devote towards thinking about the podcast, which was great. And having a supportive boss in doing that was a fantastic thing. But I guess a more personal answer is, Having worked in think tanks and sort of smart organisations, so I worked for the Overseas Development Institute and then went to work for the Tony Blair Africa Governance Initiative, which was full of kind of Oxbridge graduate McKinsey types, the same as at ODI. And having not been to Oxbridge and not having a kind of wealth of experience in, in that way, I've often felt like I don't think as hard about stuff as like proper policy people. So as a communications person you kind of often get told or you put the gloss on this or you can put the spin on this and then you watch policy people sort of sit and you ima- I think actually probably imagine them sat in a library for kind of three days on end just thinking hard mm. and for me doing the podcast was was about trying to think really hard about something that felt like it was quite fundamental that was changing in the world around me but doing that in a discursive way because I've always really enjoyed working with smart people because you can ask them questions and one of the things that I've tended to be okay at is articulating their ideas sometimes better than them um, they would I'm sure they would be happy to admit 
and I really enjoy asking people questions. And I think wherever I go with the future of the podcast, which is something that we might talk about in a bit, yeah. the thing that I've loved is being able to interview people and sort of understand not just their knowledge, but a bit about them as well. So that's where it, that's where it all came from. And so what have we what have you learned now that you're 40, 40 or so interviews in? Oof, a few things. I mean, there's things I've learned about the process of podcast making, which I won't talk about at the moment. But the in terms of kind of how society's changing or what do I think about it? If I think back to the very first episode of Government versus Robots where we had Isabel Dedring, who had been worked for the Mayor of London on transport, we talked about driverless cars. And I very much came at that from the point of view of what I wanted to do was have look at each technology and explore how that technology was going to impact political conversations in the future. And I think one of the big things I've learned is that, and bear with me because I need to try and explain this, it isn't the technology that is the, the driving force of all of this. Like, tech is changing our world hugely, but the technologies themselves are not the issue. Um, and I think some people have said that, but I don't think I've thought about it. There's a danger of going down a kind of technological determinism route with this, where oh, it's all about the tech, it's all about the social media companies. And it is to some degree, but it's also about age-old things like economics. You know, you wouldn't have the political situation we have right now if it wasn't for the economic situation we have right now. And you can discuss whether that's about equality or opportunity or you know, globalization or whatever it might be. But economics is a huge part of this. You know, equally, when it comes to the big social media companies, you know, that's about power. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's increasingly for them, it's about the amount of power that they monopolize. And when we think about them as monopolies, they're as much monopolies on power as they are monopolies on wealth in any, in any real sense. And so one thing for me is like the actual tech doesn't matter as much, which isn't to say that there aren't going to be lots of moments in the future where things we've discussed on this podcast happen, like Alexa being involved in court cases or you know people being killed by driverless cars, which has already happened in the States, but happen in a much more visceral way. And I think people who are thinking about communications on these issues should be ready for that. Other things, I think there's kind of three trends that I would box things into. So the first is around fragmentation. I think it's pretty much received wisdom now that we've seen a fragmentation in media and the way people consume media. And that fragmentation has led to a rise in identity politics because people have different perceptions. And I think being at South by Southwest and recording the episodes I recorded from South by Southwest earlier in the year, listening to big media companies and big marketing organisations with like multi-million pound budgets, all talking about the need to personalise more and this kind of hyper-personalisation, I think we're only going to see things get more personalised. And I think that's probably going to mean we're only going to see politics get more identity driven. Mm. And I don't think that's a good thing because if, as seems to be the case, people want kind of unimpeachable characters to be their political standard bearers unimpeachable characters don't exist mm-hmm. and, and and if if you're going to write someone off on the basis of one thing they think there might be 99 not that anybody everybody thinks 100 things but there might be 99 things that they think that are really valuable and the fragmentation problem is preventing that and i think it's also meaning that you need really strong powerful ideas to cut across fragmented media consumption second one is around trust and reality um, what reality is is slowly shifting and a virtual reality will change that but our perceptions of what is real are different and that isn't just about deep fake videos and whether it's a fake Nancy Pelosi video or whatever it might be it's also about kind of what you understand to be the reality of the world so if you take the kind of classic people who think along conspiracy theory lines you know, mm-hmm. they see reality as something different to the mainstream that kind of thinking I think is creeping in more and more in that people have their own view of what the world is really is and because of disinformation efforts and because of the kind of dilution of legitimacy in media that concept of different realities is changing and the ability of external actors to shape what reality is received as by people is changing and I think there's a practical implication of that in terms of like how important symbols are for example so i think one of the reasons extinction rebellion has been really successful in the last year or so is because their symbols really powerful and it you know symbols can mean a million things to a million people and in a really fragmented identity driven political space that's a really powerful thing to be able to hmm. to wield and then the third i guess the third last thing that has been discussed loads on the podcast is the importance of looking at like 
tech monopolies, but not just from the point of view of they own the market, but you know the the monopoly they now have over the future shape of society, and in terms of how we deliver digital public services, whether that's digital doctors or you know, schools that are using Facebook modules, whatever it might be whether it's you know, which algorithms are used to make decisions over who gets life insurance, what's your life insurance premium, all of that has got tech companies at the heart of it. And I just don't think it's a case of, well, we need to regulate these people so that they can't wield as much power. It's going to be much more complex than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, we could probably unpack that for about three days, <laughs> everything you've said there. But I think that question of power is one uh, which I feel like Looking back at the um, at the the back catalogue, the first podcast you did was about driverless cars. Um, I think the the next few I have them here. So there was MedTech, um, online people power. It was quite positive, and this this was like so around the end towards the end of twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. And then actually looking back at the last few, I know your your most recent interview. You know the the interviewers interviewee said he was sort of a you know an optimist. But I think the two before that were about lies and disinfo, and you know um, Nanjala's great work on you know what's what's happening in an African context and. So do you um, do you feel yourself that you've become less optimistic over that period of time, or like where do you sit in the in the optimism pessimism sort of spectrum at the moment? Definitely like towards the middle, and that isn't because that's like my ideological lodestar, but it, it's I've always I've said a lot on the podcast. You can go dystopian with the future on this, or you can go utopian, and neither is the reality because the present is always a bit shit and a bit good like in mm-hmm. different ways and you can always find something that's good about the present you always find something a bit shit about it and that will always be the case i think even you know in in most societies that are run in in less democratic ways than ours i suspect most people if you ask them what's good in your life and what's bad in your life right now would be able to point to very tangible examples of both and so dystopia utopia doesn't work where am i oh man i mean i'm probably not that far off the kind of there's an episode called Can Things Get Even Worse, with, which was the first Jamie Bartlett episode that we did. And he was like, I'm really pessimistic about this, mm. like, relentlessly pessimistic. I don't know. Like, I feel like if we don't get our shit together, then things are going to be really bad. But I see people starting to get their shit together. Like, I think as, mm. as a set of people in a community thinking about the kind of questions we've discussed on this podcast... A quite a good job has been done now there's probably a bit of the comms guy in me wants to put to do it a bit further of kind of problem definition i think we know what a lot of the issues that are in play are whether that is about state to state disinformation whether it's about a lack of transparency around data people's data you know we know where all these issues are but we don't really know what to do about it mm-hmm. and for me coming from a kind of political space at its core on that is we haven't worked out if you consider yourself to be progressive which is a term that like i hate in so many respects we haven't quite worked out how to respond to the really successful model that's been applied by definitely the right and i I wonder which word to put in front of the right at different times and i think for me i don't know how positive or pessimistic to be yet because i don't think the best response has been tried so if you look at kind of messaging on Facebook and you see loads of stuff about how content that gets put on Facebook is incentivized to be radical and bring emotion out of people and stuff, which is all true. If you put a junk bit of content into Facebook, if you're like a comms person for a charity or something, you might expect the algorithm to give you a kind of like 0.7% return <laughs> on what you've done. If you put a really good, smart bit of content into Facebook, um, you know, you've thought about, like, you've used a meme or something and your chief exec's posted a cartoon and that's a different thing on Twitter, then people react to it differently. The algorithm might give you like a 1.2% return on what you've put in. If you back that up with data, you can get up to 1.5. And if you back it up with outrage and visceral human emotion, like fear, then you might get like 2.5. Mm-hmm. And and the return on the algorithm, I don't think we've yet put as progressives the best type of content we can put into the communications ecosystem to try and take on the right. Mm. And, when, and when I say the right, I don't mean the centre-right because I don't necessarily want to take them on. I, I often would rather look to try and find common ground and not make it a battle because everything's set up to be a battle these days. 
but the right that is in the ascendancy across Europe and America and other parts of the world to take them on I don't know that we've played them at their own game yet and I don't think I can really know whether to be optimistic or pessimistic till we do do you so you you mentioned there sort of we have a bit of a sense of what the problem is and we're trying to figure out what to do with it and I think you know your your last point there you know if the problem is you know whole scale manipulation of by the, of the information environment by extremists and this is being enabled by the architecture right by algorithms or you know whatever it is you know is the response to that to play people at their own game or is the response to try and restructure this kind of architecture piece I'm going to say the $64,000 question. Yeah. I have no idea where that phrase came from. I think mm. it was like a US game show or something. It like but it was, game show I think it was thing, on like it? before I was even born. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say it's the $64,000 question, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. The answer is probably it's going to be a bit of both. Instinctively, I look at it at the moment and I feel like people who haven't watched a great hack in the last week or so, which people who think that we can just regulate our way out of this situation are barking up the wrong tree. Partly because we're not going to be in a position to do any regulating anytime soon yeah. because the politics are so fucked. And so for me, I, you know, you might be able to make some wins if you take on an ideologically driven government that is being talked to every day by lobbyists owned by the biggest companies in the world, which are Facebook, Google, and so on. Then you might be able to win some concessions, but we're not going to be able to get to a scenario where the real stuff that we need to stop from happening isn't happening. So mm. so for me the I'll regulate it and it'll go away which is a slightly unfair caricature is definitely the wrong way to look at it I am instinctively more interested in how do we play by these new rules one of the things with the Cambridge Analytica story and it, to be clear what happened you know they nicked a load of data didn't tell people they had it and used it to influence an election as best they possibly could and the result of that election in terms of the referendum in the UK was very tight doesn't lead me to say the reason that Mm. the referendum went with Brexit was because of Cambridge Analytica because there's lots of other reasons like I said at the start around economics around power around what's the vision for the future and how's the currency of hope in Britain at any given moment so I, I would draw back from saying that it affected the referendum but all of the tools that Cambridge Analytica used are in theory out there to be gained ethically and to be used ethically Now, you might not be able to build exactly the same model, but I do think, I don't feel confident that we've yet managed to put out really good data-informed progressive messaging that plays to the environment as it is at the moment and seeing what we get in return. So, annoyingly, it's the exact context that escaped me last night, but I saw some research by a guy who's really good at Twitter mapping. He was saying that he's kind of concluded that Basically, the really sharp messaging of the right is meeting a receptive audience and that's what's happening. And as a communications person, I can't help but think, actually, I don't think we've done everything we can Mm. to fight back yet. And so, yes, regulation is important, but I come down more on the, okay, if the world's changed, how are we going to do things differently? And I've got some thoughts about that, but definitely don't have a kind of like finished finished model. It's funny, I'm I'm probably a little bit inclined to to disagree. I, I think... And again, this is just some of the content that's kind of come through your your interviewees. Like, there's something you know. And this is something like manipulation of the of the information sphere. Um, you know, rather than it being so, I think necessarily tied into a sort of left or, or right ideology. I think there's you know trying to get people who are in it for the right goals to agree with each other on something <laughs> within the team is incredibly difficult. So, you know, think like, you know, can you get that group of people to agree to a very base sort of campaign or, you know, or to, to, to something which is so um, data driven mm. that it sort of has to suppress values, I think it would be incredibly different. I think there's also, uh, you know, and I see this in, in, in work around sort of elections and election responses, um, there's also a bit of like, you know, in a scenario where you have progressives getting into power through similar data manipulation or something else, they are there because of that. And then how on earth are we going to sort of fix the structural problems? There's something um, that you're kind of nearly baking in. I think So I don't think we're yet in a place where we can say that to run a kind of fairly base campaign, you have to suppress values. I don't think we're there yet that might be the case right? I just I don't think that hypothesis has been tested enough yeah no that's fair 
and until it has been i don't think it's possible to conclude what you might do so if you look at like political comms for example at the moment most of my work at the moment is with more united which i'm kind of happy to talk about we did not talk about it whether it's relevant or not but i'm obviously thinking about how as a movement do you get the more united message out there and something that strikes me is that for a lot of political organizations using volunteers has been about like physical time out in communities like mm. knocking on doors having conversations really important you talked about how important that was in the irish referendum and it is important but equally if you can get people to commit time online that's really important too and and, and so who's thinking about like what does proper effective online organizing look like where you know there are columnists in the uk whose columns get shared really widely on twitter and facebook the first comment in the comments who's it from you know and 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 often you see stuff where it's kind of possibly been written by a bot you see stuff where it's it might have been driven there by somebody from the brexit party like what's the response to that equally phone-ins like who's thinking about the fact that there are phone-ins that hundreds of thousands of people across the country are listening to now you can debate the ethics of it but a coordinated outreach to those phone-ins on a regular basis from a progressive point of view would be a really helpful contribution to the political environment right now mm. but i don't know that there's a political political entity that's really in a position to encourage that on a regular basis so there are things that in this environment you can still do that are fairly simple that if you've got people who are willing to commit time to work with you you can try and get somewhere and know? i guess this goes a bit to your you know your your, your initial point of you know the, the technology is all well and good but actually some of these issues that we're seeing some of these challenges you know say around c- campaigning for progressive issues are perhaps the digital manifestation of that is sort of you know perhaps just reflecting some of the some of the broader challenges that are people <laughs> people centered or yeah I mean, it takes a while, I think, for things to, to trickle through. So I look at what the Brexit Party are doing with their comms, and so much of it is so smart. Like, they've they've got, um, I think it's called Brexit Box or something similar to that, which is their, like, TV channel, where they're just broadcasting straight out. Mm-hmm. You know, And everyone gets, you know, it's, it's received wisdom that people who are chief execs of big campaigning organisations they know that you can do unmediated comms and that your own channels are really important. But I don't think they've like realised yet that you can make your own TV. Yeah. And, and, and if you do it well, that's a strong contribution to the debate around your issue. And it just feels to me there's a bit of lag. You know, in the development world, people want to be on in DevX or in The Guardian. And I don't, who's thinking about like joe.co.uk or, or yeah. like joe.ie where it started? It feels to me like there's a bit of lag between the kind of received wisdom of how if you've got an issue how you make sure that issue is prominent and being discussed and and then there's the question around framing which is where the volatility of language comes in so people have been discussing this week and um, there's a video it's like watch jeremy corbyn get schooled by boris johnson at pmqs and people have picked up on the schooled language and boris has you know just kind of like bombastically shredded corbyn at pmqs which is yet another example of how PMQs is now all just about getting mm. your clip so mm. that you put out on your social channel. Mm. Um, which then, you know, that's from an organisational point of view, what does that mean for your media strategy and how you approach media? It probably isn't about getting a nice article written up. It might be about getting an interview where as long as you say your message and you get your 30-second clip out and it's on a it's on a trusted platform although some people would argue that stuff that comes from less trusted platforms is ironically more trusted than than mm. you've done the job so there's a there's definitely a change in political in, in political and issue driven communication strategy i don't feel has been explored enough yeah fascinating and and so what um what should we be watching then uh, for upcoming upcoming elections we may have one here in the uk shortly we we, we may we'll definitely have one in in the us mm-hmm. next year as well and i think you know if if you are kind of want to learn as much as you can about how to try and operate in as a pro- I hate I do hate the word progressive <laughs> like because it just means so much but just quickly on that like if you're someone who thinks the world should be changed for the better and you're in the business of how to do that rather than someone who instinctively feels like the world's kind of okay as it is thanks if you're someone who wants to change the world for the better have a look at even now all the democratic candidates in the states how are they doing their comms how are they doing their organizing try and get on their mailing lists see what their messaging's like are they hiring people who are better at making memes than they are writing blogs for example 
so thinking about that but I mean more broadly next election it's going to be you're going to see a lot of stuff that Benedict Pringle talked about in the episode around political advertising which is where you get unaffiliated accounts on social doing stuff so just quickly if you look at Love Island's finished this week on Love Island on Twitter you get a lot of unofficial Love Island accounts now I have it on the on good authority that those unofficial Love Island accounts aren't always so unofficial <gasps> shocking um, and that those are being made because they enable people to have kind of plausible deniability of content but they want that type of messaging out there and they know it's going to work better now in a really kind of like almost comically bad example if you look at something like avid for javid which said javid had as his tory leadership campaign he had an avid for javid account there was a girls for gove there's a maze gays fan club account that environment on social of kind of having communities of support that aren't affiliated in any public way with a campaign i think that's going to grow and grow and grow and, and you saw in jeremy corbyn's team's response to the anti-semitism panorama show somebody leaked the lines for outriders i think it was called and those outriders are people on social media who are very happy to put out the message that needs to go out from from labor hq but they're not labor affiliated accounts and they also want people to create content so create meme style content within certain parameters Mm. and i think having you'll see a lot more of that kind of hidden war of messaging so there'll be a lot of stuff that seems to be popping up from people who've just made memes and so on which is all being kind of orchestrated is probably too strong a word because if you think about the principles of new power which is probably my favorite episode of the podcast you do have to let movements do their own thing so conducted is probably a better word than orchestrated by the different campaigns so i think we'll see a lot of that on social i think we'll see a lot of like the media just being used like totally used as a vessel for people to position themselves how they want and shout how they want and a classic example of that is when Nigel Farage went on the Mar show a little while ago and it got written up as Farage loses his cool on the BBC and he was ranting about how the BBC is a failed organisation and no one should listen to what it says anymore and this is why nobody trusts it and of course the only clip that on all of his channels was shared was just him saying the BBC is a failed institution nobody trusts it anymore but with the legitimacy of the bbc platform so the idea that that wasn't premeditated to me is nonsense like he didn't lose it he knew exactly what he was doing and i think you'll see a lot more particularly on tv people just going on to say exactly what they went on to say and not care about the rest of it and in that environment that's easier to do because you could argue that's always been the way like that's what message discipline was about in 1997 but it is different because it's about the clip and it's about how you share the clip to your own audience Whereas in 97, it was much harder to clip stuff. And so equally, at the same time, I think I'd also be watching for the potential of closed Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups. So I know in India, WhatsApp played a big role in the last elections. You're probably even more familiar with it than me, Liz. Um, But I think I know several people who've been added to neighbourhood WhatsApp groups recently, which feel like the kind of spaces that shit can spread really fast. That's kind of like the new Facebook wall. Mm. So who's thinking about that space and how that's contested around an election? And then I think you'll see a lot of moments which are manufactured just to create emotion. So I'm trying to think of an example of that, but I think there's going to be a lot of situations where something that is about your emotional response becomes the main story of the day, which couldn't be further removed from policy. So if you take all the examples are really controversial right so if i think about two to do with boris there are always areas of gray in politics on perception so if you look at boris's argument with his girlfriend and how everyone kicks off about that right none of us had full possession of the facts like literally none of us know exactly what was going on there like whether it's off the scale boris losing his temper or whether it was just a bit of a tiff like who knows but that everyone in the country had their view and that view seems to come down on the side of what is your pre-existing political position and where it seems more and more where there's a place that you can have a split of opinion people's like ethical moral political judgment on something is totally aligned with their political position it's like somehow the two are ethics and politics are the same all of a sudden because Mm -hmm. your identity is so in hoc 
to needing to agree with these people and your kind of tribe all of the time. And so from an electoral point of view, I think that plays to the interests of people who don't want to be having proper policy orientated mm. discussions. So I, I imagine you'll see a few like outlandish statements that are made purely to distract. Like it's funny how someone like Trump people say oh he's really strategic at like throwing up kind of distracting balloons. Is he strategic or is he just a reactionary idiot? The two kind of get conflated. It doesn't matter. The reality is we're in a situation now where Donald Trump tweets something and that's still still now the news story for thirty six hours. And that prevents anything else coming through that is a bit more kind of normal and less about emotion and less about ethics and position. And because things are so polarised and everyone's either side of the fence, that stuff serves him because his side of the fence is currently stronger for reasons we've already discussed. And I think you'll see that here in the UK. Like I think you will see um, people make statements that are preconceived to be uncomfortable um, like if you think about Boris's article on the on the burqa, for example, like that was preconceived. I think we'll see some equivalence of that in elections in the UK. Oh, interesting. Well, and and when you put that together with your earlier point about personalization and sort of the increasing sort of um, bubble bubbleization, <laughs> is that the word? Like and sort of your discussions of sort of power, mm. uh, right? And you know, even like I think a lot of the tactics that you're talking about there of you know your Love Island esque sort of artificial creation of the information environments. When when you combine all of those things together, it's probably little wonder that you know if people are in a in a sort of closed information environment, you know that that starts to translate into the political environment, you know, ethics. All of these things become so sort of intertwined and oppositional right? Yeah. To, to something different yeah it's it's kind of the little things that add up to make the particular political culture of a moment mm. and, and that's why i think you kind of got to break them all down and try and address them all in different ways and i don't necessarily know how to address them all and thankfully people start to think about it. you know there's pro- lots of projects about polarization how to bring people together you know, you're working on integrity of democracy there's a lot of stuff starting to happen now but i, I still feel like it would be nice to kind of I haven't yet seen here are the six areas that are adding up to the political culture that we now have and here is how we have to tackle each of them mm. um, it doesn't feel like that kind of manifesto of action is out there yet yeah um, I might spend some time trying to write about that in the next over the next few weeks while the podcast is on a break but we'll see ready to pop the question The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What's the thing that gives you the most optimism? Like, um, Lots of the guests, like just generally. And as I say, like, you, you know, there's a lot of hard thought going into this. There's a lot of good people thinking about it and scratching their heads and taking the initiative to try and start doing stuff that doesn't doesn't already exist to react to the new environment in which we find ourselves. I mean, I think 
a few different strands that feel to me important um alex evans was on recently on an episode called trigger warning talking about collective psychology but he made a really important point about there being a kind of larger us so us operating in a lot of a an us versus them mentality which is very much about the tribalism and about identity and that the best big breakthrough moments in social progress have been driven by a narrative that is about a larger us and what brings us together and binds us you know at the moment we're missing the kind of myths is how he would put Mm. it that enable us to see beyond our tribes and think about us as one and climate's a really obvious area for doing that that i think is a really important route that said with a touch of skepticism about whether it works in the current environment or how you adapt it for the current environment because it's almost like you need a them like you kind of need a them and so but who is that them sort of needs to be ex- external to humanity which is if you go back from a common storytelling point of view that's where like the idea of the devil and all that stuff came from because if we want to bring people together as a planet to tackle something like climate change our them really needs to not be one of us because you're doing the oppositionalism thing so i think thinking around how you create a larger us and how you create narratives that can bring the largest number of people together is really important and it seems to be happening um people are getting much more aware of data rights Mm. and i think that whole conversation's got a long way to go in terms of how do we use our data for good you know at the moment it's often seen as it's bad that we give our data away like it doesn't have to be bad that we give our data away as long as we know who we're giving our data and what they're doing with it that can be fantastic it can be fantastic for research purposes it can be fantastic for social movements and it can be fantastic for delivering public services so the data rights conversation i think although often is received as being we're a bit on the back foot because of stuff that's happened i think that there's a lot of promise in where we can go with that um i think there's a in some quarters maybe this is just kind of like a bit for me there's a lot more thinking around like empathy and humanity in an institutional sense. So Nadine Smith was on an episode called 21st Century Government and um, from the Institute for Government. And they've done a lot of thinking about institutional legitimacy and what does smart government look like in the 21st century. And um, humanity and empathy are important parts of that. And I think the more we as a society, I guess, can try and keep that at the root of how we behave, both individually and as institutions and corporations and whatever it it might be um the better so that's some active thinking and then what's missing that would make me more positive i think i don't think there's a really good understanding of what an active citizen does right now Mm. and i'm complicit in this i've sat in loads of conversations including like 40 in this room about what do we do about this terrible state of affairs how much like practical stuff out there being an active citizen have i done at the same time like a charitable interpretation is making the podcast is active citizenship less charitable interpretation is like how much time have you given away for free to something because of the state of the labor party particularly i don't think there's a really obvious receptacle for active citizenship or a kind of manifesto for what an active citizen does in this world i think that's missing and i think we need it and i'd like to see more of an understanding of it and then lastly i've got to plug more united at this point just because working with more united which is now the uk's largest cross-party movement we've got 150,000 supporters and um 60 mps in what is the kind of first ever permanent network of mps who are going to regularly work cross-party in parliament no matter which government is in power to try and make progress on issues that that they can find agreement on it feels very important in such a polarized space that genuinely something new is emerging that people and politicians are buying into that says that we want to live in a more united country we've got shared agreement about what that is it's like a country where everybody has an equal say country where everybody gets the chance to make the most of their talents country that looks after the environment for future generations and we're going to campaign for it and try and make it happen and with so much uncertainty in the political environment at the moment we don't know where things are going to go right you've got the lib dems are very much enjoying resurgence labor perceptions on that vary my own are deeply bleak but with more united there's an opportunity for people around the uk no matter who their mp is to engage with a movement that is able to support mps who are trying to come together and put country above party and that excites me and is kind of where i spend 
three of my five days allocated to working every week at the moment. So I I feel like I'd be um, doing them a disservice if I didn't mention that. Yeah, well, and, and I want to get on to what's next for you and what's next for uh, for the podcast. But one thing um, I want to just quickly check in on you is when you set up government versus the robots, I presume it was a, a sort of deliberate decision to be sort of international or sort of global in your perspective in terms of bringing voices in. Why did you choose to do that rather than a sort of a UK specific? I mean, it's partly pragmatism in terms of knowing that I could speak to interesting people from elsewhere in the world and having worked in development for the last 10 years it's quite unusual for me and like I think but until I was 21 I hadn't left Europe and I'd only really been to France and then suddenly I went to work in international development and did loads of travel and just kind of like wow there's a whole world out there and that global perspective is really important and I think that's something that most people that listen to this podcast instinctively get um, but for me it's kind of dearly held because it's a more recent discovery in some respects but also like more seriously there's a lot of thinking about britain at the moment because of brexit and so on and there's a really important truth that i don't think is present in our national conversation that much at the moment which is that like we are not the country we used to be Hmm. um and in some senses that's obvious given the current state of play but like you know when we're not in the ascendancy we don't have access to a load of free resource We, we have some real economic challenges because of our reliance on the financial sector our national debt has doubled under a government which like for some mad reason still seems to maintain a reputation for economic competence how britain exists in the 21st century what type of economy does it have where are its comparative advantages all of that like feels absent then yet so relevant when people are losing their jobs the deindustrialized north is still kind of like hasn't got a renewed it's got a sense of identity but doesn't have a don't think it's got the northern powerhouse doesn't seem to add up to a plan for what to do in terms of economic renewal in the north of the uk and i mention that because that means you have to look to the rest of the world and understand the rest of the world and think about your place in it and think about where you can best serve other economies because if no man is an island no country even an island is an island really Mm -hmm. and so i think having an international perspective is really important from that point of view if you want to understand where Britain is. And I, I think when I think about international development and public attitudes toward aid and development and that sort of stuff, which is a bit more kind of what has been worked for me for the last 10 years, the gap between Britain and the rest of the world is shrinking in a lot of respects in terms of like well-being and income and kind of the, the all the measures that economists would t- tend to use. And so it's important to learn from and cooperate with others and understand what's happening in their environment. So there's that basic point. The other one is that like, what states are doing matters and you can't you know you can't only look at your own state i really enjoyed the recent interview on lies travel fast with amal khan where he was talking about how states try to influence the information environment in other states and i think you have to have a global perspective to be able to understand that and you, know, you mentioned in in the episode that we did the use of whatsapp in brazil and you know i've mentioned it today in india there's a lot of stuff happening that like because of globalization and because of the spread of technology, stuff that happens in an election in the Philippines this year will happen in our election next year. If you're interested in getting ahead of the curve and trying to change the world for the better, you need to know what's coming. And and it's com- if you want to know what's coming, wherever there's an election right now, look what's happening on social media and you will see. So is that also I get frustrated. I think it's important for people to understand, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, that often things it gets used as a test bed for stuff. Now, that can be a good thing. Like, you know, the drone deliveries in Rwanda, a famous example of how they fly blood to people in medical emergencies. And because it's a really deregulated environment, it's actually much easier. There's a whole episode on drones called Flying Pizza Deliveries, which is worth listening to if you're interested in such things. But equally, like Cambridge Analytica in Kenya and the role that they played in the Kenyan elections, which is, is, is murky and not widely understood, but they were there. And now Kenya, the Kenyan government is bringing forward some of the most oppressive knee-jerk regulation requiring people to give over, residents to give over biometric data and kind of, you know, as they look east and particularly towards the way that China kind of controls its society, you know, I think that's really worrying and the ability of governments to control their societies in new ways, which 10 years ago I felt was a kind of like unnecessary thing to be concerned about in the current political environment feels much more concerning. And then lastly, 
One of the things we've never really discussed on the podcast, but I think is potentially really interesting, particularly for people who work internationally, is I don't think we'll be that far from language not being that much of an issue. Hmm. Like, Google Translate is pretty good. I don't know if when you're on holiday, if you ever hover your phone over a menu to work out what you're going to order. You know, that's good, but I don't think it'll be that that long so we can get like real-time translation online and potentially in person what that does for the ability of transnational political movements is amazing because if, you know if you think about the language barrier is such a massive barrier I, I as a comms person feel really lucky to have a grasp of english and use it well but i haven't i'm awful at almost every other language and I, i'm a completely different person like i'm, I'm kind of not a person almost mm. and there's so many people in the world that you can have interesting conversations with that you can't and those barriers are going to come down and i th- i i would predict on the basis of no evidence and just kind of that that will actually render challenges to nation states it will ch- completely change the parameters in which politics is conducted but then right now the people best equipped to make use of like reduced language barriers is probably the far right across europe but that won't necessarily remain the case. And so I think you know, we shouldn't see other countries, and particularly other countries that aren't our near neighbours, as always being irrelevant to our future political ambitions for the world around us. So what's next um, for you and for the podcast? Uh, so podcast, this is the last episode of Series 2. Oh. How we'll be back and when we'll be back right now i don't know um like we did series one and had a break at a similar time and then i saw lots of interesting stuff happening and couldn't resist kind of reaching out for interviews and so on when i started government versus the robots i really hoped that there'd be a kind of community around it and i feel really lucky to have built a community around it in terms of people who've been on the show and there's people who engage regularly on social to whom all of them thanks for doing so but because i'm in a position at the moment where i do still have that spare time that i've carved out in my working life I want to kind of get more practical and hands-on in trying to tackle some of this stuff. And so I'm I'm going to be doing some thinking about how do I do that, whether that's writing over the coming months and maybe putting out a few think pieces, whether it's trying to convene conversations, I don't know. But I guess my plea at this point is if you're a regular Government versus Robots listener and you either want to get in touch to have a chat and chew the fat and see if there's interesting stuff that you're working on, now is the time to do it. Um, if you've always thought there's something we should cover and we haven't covered it and there's someone we should have on now is the time to let us know and equally if you've enjoyed it and you want to say thanks please do another series now's also the time to let us know as well and and also i think i guess it'd be interesting to know which which episodes people enjoy most because i i would say we've kind of had three types of episode there's kind of the here's a technology what's happening with it then there's a kind of like disinformation fake news communications environment conversations and then there's the more institutional what's government like how do we do public services type conversations which of those are most interesting to people would be good to know and lastly you know if you've ever wanted to host or there's an issue that you or your organization thinks is really important and we should do a deep dive into it um again get in touch and i know we have the twitter handle which is at g-o-v-t underscore v-s underscore robots um but please get in touch with me directly. My email address is jonathancetanner at gmail.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-C Tanner, T-A-N-N-E-R at gmail.com. And hopefully we'll hear from some people and we'll go somewhere. So I'm definitely going nowhere. The podcast's going on a break. Something will be back in some shape or form in the not too distant future. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, And and I guess without giving uh, too much of your (laughs) newly acquired um, and quite extensive skills in the art of making this happen, um, I'd have to say it's it's not easy sitting on this side. (laughs) (laughs) You've done a great job. It's it's a strange experience. But what what are your, I guess, the top tips if people want to try and and create content like this? it's kind of hard not to reduce it i always try i mean as people who listen to i always try and end on a positive note so i mean i guess just do it a story i sometimes tell about government versus the robots when i first started thinking about making it i wanted to have an academic perspective and a practitioner perspective and i was going to have two guests on each episode and so around driverless cars isabel was the second guest and um there was somebody who, who won't be named but who came in and gave a really academic perspective on driverless cars and that was really useful for informing me the interview was like 
really quite dry and probably wouldn't have made for fantastic listening and i was down here in the studio after i'd finished i was like okay that was a reasonable start like maybe i need to cut it quite a lot so i looked over at the computer and i realized i hadn't recorded any of the interview oh dear and i was like oh my god i'm a total idiot why am i even trying to do this like i'm just not equipped for this sort of stuff at all and then i realized like with a bit of help from somebody else i asked him if he'd come back and re-record he said no and then i was like i don't need that i only need one person per episode they just need to be interesting and so i guess my number one tip is make it as simple as you can um and then when you think you've made it as simple as you can you can probably make it simpler again (laughs) um but also like kind of get on with it you know this was born for me out of wanting to sort of partly want to prove something to myself if i'm honest and just being like okay i'm gonna do this see where it goes see what happens unless you try you'll never know um i guess i guess i'd made podcasts for tony blair institute in like sierra leone and liberia and we made one for odi and i interviewed some interesting people so i i knew i'd enjoy it but carving out the time in my work life and going right i'm going to do this was daunting but it's been an absolutely fantastic experience so far so you know in terms of how do you make it there is no better answer than make time and try well i'm very glad that you did (laughs) i think i've greatly enjoyed getting to sit with you and incredibly interesting people um, in my ears as I'm on the bus or doing whatever and I, I've, I've learned a lot and it's actually it has definitely informed my work so thank you both for sitting today to share your reflections but also for all of the time and energy that goes into making this this great contribution to, to society cool thanks Liz thanks Jonathan that's all from Government versus the Robots for the summer. Huge thanks, as ever, to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at govt underscore vs underscore robots. In the meantime, enjoy the holidays, and we'll be back at some point in the future. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.